Welcome to the Sacred Flame Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Nordvig. Here, gathered around the fire, we explore our ancestral story worlds. Some call them myths and mythology, but I think they're much more than that. Our ancient stories are the foundation narratives that help guide us in life, reinvigorate the modern world, and bring us back to a place of balance. Modern society needs an archaic revival, a new force that's sourced from the old forgotten knowledge that was once transmitted in living stories in sacred settings. We gather by the sacred flame and revive the old ways of creating community in the world by listening to nature, our inner flame, and re-establishing the ties that let us realize that we are connected with everything that exists. Our ancestors knew that cultivating the right relationships with the other than human beings in the world is the key to living a good life. In this podcast, I'm retelling and reconnecting the Nordic story world with our reality and offering my thoughts on how you can use these stories to reflect on what it means to exist in the modern world. As the brilliant bohemian composer Gustav Mahler once said, tradition is nurturing the flame, not worshipping the ashes. Thank you for tuning in. At a farm in Kammer in Iceland, there lived a couple. The husband's name was Stutla, and the wife's name was Gudni. Together they had five children, Thorther, Sigvather, Helga, Vigdis, and Snurri. Snurri was the youngest, and besides his four full siblings, he had another nine half-siblings. And one day, his father Stutla was at the assembly, where he was settling a case with Pautl Solvason. It so happened that Pout's wife, Thorbjörg, didn't like the outcome of the case, so she drew her knife and attacked Stutla. As she lunged forth at him, she screamed, I'll cut your eye out so you'll look like your hero, Odin. She missed her target, and Stutla escaped the attack unscathed. But now Stutla had the right to redress Pautl for his wife's attack on him. So the end of the matter was that Jón Lothson of the Otti clan intervened and offered Stutler that he would raise his son Snurri as his own. At the age of three, Snurri journeyed to Otti to live, and there he received an excellent education. Jón was the grandson of Iceland's first historian, Saimundr Infrodi, and he was an accomplished lawyer and politician who had been educated at Konungahetli in Norway. The Otti clan was the most powerful clan in Iceland. Now Snurri's father Sturla died in 1183 and his mother had afterwards squandered all of his inheritance. Jón Lopson died in 1197 but the Otti clan was generous enough to arrange a marriage for Snurri with Herdis Bersadottir, a daughter of the famous Eil Skatlakrimson's clan at Borg. 
And this is how Snorri came to live at Borg in Borgafjöður, Egil's old estate. With the estate at Borg, Snorri also inherited a godoth or chieftainship, and thus a place at the Althingi, the General Assembly. As a Gothi, he became an accomplished chieftain, poet, and author, and things were good for a while. But then some years into their marriage, Snarri and Hedis drifted apart. He left Borg and went to live at Reykholt. At this time, his political career really took off, and in 1215 he became Lörksögumadr, or law speaker, at the Althingi. He held that position until he sailed to Norway in 1218. In Norway, he impressed the young teenage king Haukon Haukonason IV with his traditional skaldic poetry. He composed a long poem called Hautatal in Haukon's honor. And Haukon, in return, honored him in the traditional Nordic way by showering him with gifts, including a ship that Snorri eventually sailed home on in 1220, after Haukon had made him his Skutilsvein, or knight. And Snorri then became law speaker again in 1222. And in 1224, he married Jondotson's granddaughter, Hartwig Urmstottir. He was on top of the world. This made him the most powerful chieftain in Iceland. But it all began to fall apart in 1230. Because as a knight of the Norwegian king, Snorri was effectively the political mouthpiece of Norway at the Icelandic General Assembly. And this made him a lot of enemies. And one of these enemies was his own brother, Sigvatr Sturlason. Snorri raised an army against Sigvatr, but the latter proved to have much more support in Iceland, and he ended up driving Snorri and his army into the mountains. So after a prolonged struggle, Snorri once again left Norway in 1237 to seek reinforcement from the king there. Now the king was in the midst of a civil war with his earl Skuli, and when Snorri arrived, he did not really understand who he was supposed to show his allegiance to. So he ended up letting himself be enrolled by Skuli in his little affairs. And the king was furious. He forbade Snorri from leaving Norway. But Snorri said, Ut vilek, I want to go home. And then he left for Iceland again. In 1239, he returned to Iceland and began plotting a legal maneuver against another chieftain named Gizer Thorvaldsson who had killed his brother Sigvatr, because even though Snorri and Sigvatr were enemies, they were family. Now, meanwhile, King Haukon Haukonason had vanquished his opponent Skuli and consolidated his power in Norway. Full of vengeance, Haukon sent a letter to Gizer Thorvaldsson, urging him to kill or capture Snorri Sturluson. So one fall evening in 1241, Seventy men, led by Gizer himself, came up over the green hills near Reykholt. Snorri, 
poring over his writings, was caught off guard when he saw the light of the torches in the distance. Panicking, he ran to the cellar in an attempt to hide. But Gieser and his men broke down the doors and searched the house. They found Snurri cowering in the basement. Snurri cried out, Don't strike. But Gieser and his men killed the poor bastard. That was the end of Snurri Sturluson. And ultimately, it was the end of a sovereign Iceland. Because for his loyal service to Hákon Hákonason, Gieser Thorvalsson was given the title Earl of Iceland in 1258. And in 1262, Gieser's hard labor paid off fully. He managed to convince the General Assembly to submit to the Norwegian king. Now this is the short version of the life of Snorri Sturluson, a man that I have mentioned several times on this podcast already. I gave you the headlines of his life, the ups and downs, the intrigue, the fights, but I left out the philandering and all the tales about how Snorri fathered several children with three to four different women. I also left out the little bit about how Snorri Sturluson authored Edda sometime after 1220 when he returned from Norway. He may also even have written the collection of the Norwegian king's sagas called Heimskringla and perhaps Eil Grimson's saga when he was living at Borg. But that's, of course, guesswork. Nobody knows if he actually did write those sagas. But if it's the case, then he was a prolific intellectual in his time, a skilled writer and a veritable wellspring of historical knowledge. I dare say that he was perhaps the last elder of the Nordic story world. He was the last person to carry with him a repository of ancient poetry, stories and legendary figures in his head. He was the last person, not because I know he was the last person, but because I know he was the one who wrote these stories down and thus consigned the living oral tradition of the Nordic story world to the shackles of literature. This episode will be a journey into what it means for a society to lack elders, what it means when the stories that the elders would have told have been confined to literature, and the result of the loss of tradition that comes with the loss of elders. The breakdown of intergenerational solidarity, the breakdown of functional human meaning-making of space and time, the transfer of our ideas about right and wrong from a world-relational context to a world-rejecting context. And that world-rejecting context is succinctly expressed in Western culture as the belief in heaven and hell with all the moral complexities that come with it. A belief in fantasies of realms of punishment and reward that is often claimed to have been expressed by the Christian God in scripture. I've talked about the problem of belief in scripture before on this podcast. The problem with scripture, with literature, is that it feigns truth. We have an implicit assumption that when something is written down, it must have a higher degree of truth to it than when someone is just saying it. 
this is certainly not the case. Literature is fluid, just like the spoken word. The period in which humans have been under the spell of believing that there is a higher degree of truth in literature than the spoken word is actually rather short. While different societies, of course, have had different ideas about the veracity of the written word, this newfangled tendency to revere the written word as God really only becomes a dominant theme in European culture in the 1500s. Sure, European intellectuals started earlier with this, but the broad public, on the other hand, had other ideas until they were presented with a new technology, the printing presses. The printing presses dates to the 9th century China. And I believe it was the journeys of Marco Polo in the late 1200s that resulted in the invention eventually trickling westward to Europe. Oh, and by the way, when we speak of Marco Polo, we should keep in mind that his story is a great example of how the written word isn't particularly truthful and often comes with an inherent fluidity to it. The European stories about Marco Polo are extant in no less than 150 manuscripts. And I say European because they were written in different languages and kept in different places, not just in Italy where he was from. The oldest manuscript we know of is written in a mixture of medieval French and medieval Italian. It was written in the early 1300s. The second oldest manuscript is from 1350, and that one is kept in the Swedish National Library. In the field of medieval philology, that's what we scholars call the research we do on language and literature based in textual criticism, we search for the authoritative version of a story that has been recorded in multiple manuscripts. That's, for instance, what I was trained to do with the text from the Nordic story world. You essentially dig down into all the versions, assess them based on which version was copied from which, where they were written, can we identify authors, and so on. Now, Italian scholars have performed those kinds of exercises on those 150 manuscripts that tell Marco Polo's story. So if you've ever read a story about Marco Polo or seen a movie about him, you've probably been presented with a summary of the content of that early 14th century Franco-Italian text, which the Italian scholar Luigi Foscolo Benedetto has designated as the authoritative version. Now, this version gives an account of the historical person Marco Polo, and modern history writing then represents his journeys on the Silk Road with the historically believable components. What modern history writing and philologists like myself usually leave out of our contemporary retelling of stories written in the medieval period about historical individuals is all the funky stuff. The funky stuff in many of the versions of Marco Polo's journeys is the stuff that people in medieval Europe still believed you could encounter in Asia. That's the kind of stuff that originates with other medieval narrations, like the stories about Mandeville's journeys, Alexander the Great's conquests, Barbarossa's crusades to the Holy Land, and so on. These stories are populated with weird events, strange magicians, bizarre monsters, 
and have scenes and sections that are a veritable acid trip. Because that was normal in medieval literature. Even when you were narrating what was essentially a biography of a historical person. Some people in the medieval era would believe in the veracity of these fantastical accounts, and others wouldn't, because there have always been skeptics out there. Now back to the printing presses. In Europe, we attribute the invention of the printing press to the German goldsmith Johannes Gutenberg in 1436. That's not because he actually invented it, of course. It's because he successfully created a viable printing technology with movable metal-type blocks that allowed for much faster printing of letters onto paper, and then he popularized his invention. This version of the printing press already existed in, in Korea in the 1300s, but in Europe it was Gutenberg who successfully marketed the machine. And what came out of that was nothing less than chaos. Less than a hundred years after, many of the German states revolted against the papal church in Rome, ushering in the Reformation and a long sequence of religious wars. This was in part due to the availability of the printed letter. The ability to quickly disperse pamphlets, flyers, and of course, printed versions of the Bible. The printed versions of the Bible allowed more people to read it. You see, before printing, as I've explained in an earlier episode, those who were copying books either had to travel to libraries and copy in hand on site, or memorize the written words in books in those libraries and then go home and rewrite the whole thing. That's how most of the Nordic story world was disseminated in the medieval period. But Gutenberg's printing press changed that. And it also changed the way that Europeans would communicate and think about their world. Because people realized that it was possible to spread lies much quicker. If you know a bit about the history of the printing press and the Reformation, you've probably been told that the first thing that Europeans began printing was the Bible. Now, that's not totally incorrect, but what you might not have been told is that along with the Bible, the first thing that we began printing was pamphlets full of what we today would call hate speech. It started with anti-Semitic content, then it rolled over to xenophobic stuff, and when the Reformation happened, Protestants and Catholics, of course, began printing myths and disparaging material about each other. Those myths were read on the pamphlets, retold to those who couldn't read, and crunched into the memory pipeline that simplifies and distorts information. What comes out the other end is the most digestible version of a story. And this is how the myth about Dracula was created. Vlad III, son of Dragul, better known as Vlad Sepesh, which translates to Vlad the Impaler, ruled Wallachia in Romania between 1448 and 77. Vlad Sepes navigated some quite perilous political waters in his lifetime. To the northwest, he had the local regional power, the Hungarian kingdom. To the south, he had a veritable world power of the time, the Ottoman 
Empire. Internally, in the area that is now Romania, Vlad was dealing with multiple rivals and a multi-ethnic tapestry of peoples with their own political aspirations, religions, and xenophobic attitudes. Now, while his epithet, the Impaler, is probably well-earned, this was, after all, his preferred method of executing his enemies, I doubt that he was any more bloodthirsty than any other ruler in medieval Europe. Vlad did what Vlad had to do to survive as a voivode in the 15th century Balkans. However, thanks to his conflicts with the Transylvanian Saxons in the 1450s, a dire situation of enmity and transgressions on both sides, he earned a place in history as one of the most bloodthirsty, sadistic rulers in Europe. That reputation then became a story about a vampire with Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. With the invention of the printing press and its subsequent use for propaganda by these Transylvanian Saxons, Vlad ended up as a household name in German-speaking communities across Central Europe. The Saxon stories painted a picture of Vlad as a demented psychopath, a sadist, and a gruesome murderer comparable to the Roman emperors Nero and Caligula, whose stories are also partially made up, by the way. Now, the first stories about Vlad were printed in Nuremberg in 1499, and then Strasbourg in 1500 and they became bestsellers of brutal fiction for the German-speaking public in Central Western Europe. When Bram Stoker was writing his story about Dracula, he was doing what English authors of the time did best. They would create horror fictions based on the othering of continental Europeans, Africans, Asians, and indigenous peoples across the world. I've explained a bit about how that worked with Viking Age history and Nordic culture in Shakespeare's, William Blake's, and Thomas Gray's literature in a previous episode. Now, Bram Stoker followed that tradition of designing uncanny tales full of horror by choosing distant Gothic settings in the East and synthesizing historical data with blood and gore. And there you go. A medieval prince becomes a blood-sucking ghoul. This is how myths are made about real people. The combination of xenophobia and overactive imagination, a dash of carelessness about who your imagination targets, and efficient media technology. The printing press was to the 16th century what social media is to the 21st century. It was used in the same way, and it created similar kinds of social problems. Division, enmity, discord, war. So, what kind of answer did people come up with to all of that? It's kind of the same answer as you see it today. An attempt to counter fiction with fact, curb disinformation, whatever you want to call that. An attempt to rein in the younger generations who were now searching for new life ways. In the 1500s, the search for sustainably true information led to the notion that the Bible was fact. And along with the Bible came also other religious treatises that various Christian scholars had composed in the back then roughly 1,000 years that Christianity had dominated intellectual life in Europe. 
The content of these texts was adopted as canon among many Protestants, just like it had been in the Catholic Church. But there were, of course, differences. And to many Protestants, a strong literal interpretation of texts deemed canon or scripture became standard. Now, you might be thinking, oh, but what about the papal church that rejected Copernicus's heliocentric representation of the cosmos? That wasn't any better. Now, if you're thinking that, you're wrong. Not because the papal church actually was better, but because the papal church never rejected Copernicus. To the contrary, it was Dutch Protestants who had migrated to Poland, fleeing the Spanish occupation of the Netherlands, who attacked him for proposing that Earth circles the sun. If you've heard that it was the Catholic Church that rejected his heliocentric worldview, you've heard a piece of Enlightenment-era Protestant propaganda against Catholics. But why was it that Protestants in particular would reject Copernicus? The reason is the Protestant tendency to believe in the letter of Scripture over any other perceivable phenomenon. The Protestant solution to the problem with the papal church's historical monopolization of biblical and other Christian knowledge in inaccessible Latin was the idea that the written word was God. You see, the papal church was a huge and old system that over time expressed different ideas about knowledge, learning, and the compatibility between knowledge systems like the ones we call science and those we call religion today. The papal church wasn't necessarily repressive towards science. Some popes were, and some clergy were, but there wasn't as such a standard on the matter. When the printing press showed up and people began translating and printing Bibles in common languages, various kinds of Protestants decided that the Bible would now be our only means of accessing truth about the world. And Bible in this context should be broadly understood because it includes texts that aren't necessarily part of the Bible. The papal church did certainly think like that too in many ways, but it didn't just discount other information out there. That mode of thinking, the idea that the Bible is the word of God, became dominant in Europe and more or less took over European thinking from the 1600s. And this trend created the Puritans, later it created the Fundamentalists, and what we call Evangelicals today. What such groups ignore about their book, though, is, of course, that there is no univocality in the text. It was not written by a single person, a god, or with one single voice. That means that whenever someone refers to scripture, when they want to tell you what the truth about life in our world is, they're cherry-picking. And a feature that became so dominant in Protestant cosmology, the belief in heaven and hell, is actually not even in the Old Testament, in the way that most Christians believe today. The Old Testament, also called the Hebrew Bible, actually only describes an underworld called Sheol, in which both righteous and transgressors will end up. But during the Syrian wars between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Kingdom in the centuries preceding Christ, things began to change. The Israelites began to think differently about how their God could or would not protect them from their enemies. And this is when ideas about a Sheol 
full of punishment for the unrighteous transgressors, enemies of the Israelites, emerged. The first book of Enoch is one of those texts laying out apocalyptic judgment for sinners and describing demons, angels, and the Nephilim. But the thing is that this book has not been regarded as canon in Christianity since the 400s CE. Only the Ethiopian church still considers cons, cut. Only the Ethiopian church still considers this book canonical. So the evidence for a hell full of punishment in what most Christians consider the Bible is actually minimal. And if you open the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus seems to have been teaching all kinds of ideas about hell, some which fall in line with the book of Enoch and other apocalyptic visions, others that certainly don't. One of the primary authors of material for the New Testament, St. Paul, never even talks about hell. Now we'll get back to hell later on in this episode, but what I want to emphasize right now is that we must understand from this that there is no single written authority on anything, least of all ancient cultural narratives like the Bible and other Christian literature. Cultural narratives that sample the thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, and knowledge about the world among a certain group of people during a certain period. And cultural narratives is what we humans have. Cultural narratives are essentially the expression of our thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, and knowledge about the world in a very precise manner through language, verbal, visual, and symbolic communication. We've been creating cultural narratives orally for 40,000 years. We've also painted pictures for 40,000 years. But for about 5,000 years, we have expressed our thoughts in letters. And for a maximum of 1,300 years, we've printed our thoughts using the printing press. And only since Guillermo Marconi patented the radio in 1896, we've been broadcasting our thoughts. Only since the 1920s, we've added moving images to our broadcasting. And only since the 1990s have we had that interactive user element that enables real-time recipient response to the broadcasting of our thoughts, which the internet has allowed. Written, visual, and audio recordings of communication come together as distance communication. But back before distance communication with strangers far away from us was invented, we had to sit face to face, look at each other, look each other in the eyes, and make a story make sense based on the here and now, the present moment, the local space. And that was the job of the elder. Now for most Scandinavians, the era where we had to communicate face to face and listen to an elder waned in the centuries between 900 and 1300. For a long time, of course, approaching the 1800s, the situation was still mixed. You might have had access to written texts, but the primary means of communicating thoughts were still oral. For Snorri Sturluson back in the 13th century in Iceland, it may have been sort of like a 50-50 split between oral and distance communication. Politics and social matters needed to be conveyed in the traditional way in person more often than not. Now Snorri grew up with a lot of oral stories and poetry and performances, but at the same time he was surrounded by books. 
And he chose to write down both literary and oral tales in Edda, committing the Nordic story world to the firm grasp of literature. In his generation, the oral version of the Nordic story, story world began losing ground to a literary way of understanding the world. And at the same time, kings in Norway could send letters to people in Iceland telling them to kill Snorri, distance communication. As you can see with Snorri's example, the loss of an oral tradition came gradually, and that's the case for many, if not all, European populations, just like any other population on the planet. And across the continent, the different populations slowly but steadily became more and more literate, and the social systems in place favored literacy over orality to a higher and higher degree. To many peoples that we now call indigenous, the shift was much more abrupt. When Europeans began colonizing other parts of the world, their societies had already shifted enough toward emphasis on literacy rather than orality, even though some of the old oral forms were present. Iceland is again a good example to illustrate that shift. As I mentioned, in Snorri's time, politics was still mostly handled in an oral setting in Iceland. When he served as Lurksergomadr at the Althingi, he had to remember and successfully recite the entire law code of Iceland. That's hardcore orality. Consider what it requires of a person to be able to remember the entire law. Most people wouldn't be able to do something like that today. Now, Scandinavians began writing their old oral laws down in the mid to late 12th century, and by the last half of the 13th century, that transition from oral to literary law was complete. Iceland was enrolled in the Norwegian kingdom in 1262, and in 1272, ten years after, Magnus Lagerböte issued the Royal Norwegian Law in written form. By the late 1400s, when the Spanish reached the lands we now call the Americas, there were no law speakers left in Iceland. Instead, Iceland had a royal bailiff, now representing the king in Denmark thanks to the fusion of the Norwegian and Danish kingdoms in 1387. The role of the royal bailiff wasn't to remember an ancient law like the Lurksurgumadr that Snerys Dullesen had been. Instead, the bailiff would read decrees from the king to the subjects at the assemblies, letters that had been sent. In that period, it also became a mark of authenticity that the decree, the letter that had been sent, had been written and sealed by the king himself. This was a complete transition from trust in the spoken word from an elder, a human repository of tradition, to trust in letters on a page accompanied by a seal with an imprint representing a man far away. Distance communication. When Europeans showed up on distant shores, many of the peoples they met had kept their traditional oral systems of knowledge. Some of them did, of course, have written communication, distance communication, and you should consider that many of those who did have that also had similar social systems as those Europeans that eventually conquered them. Empires, subjects, slaves, class systems, genocidal behavior. Now that's what Tyson Junker-Porter has pointed out in his book Sand Talk. Distance communication is often used to control populations far away. 
so you can funnel their resources to your metropolitan center. This is a human mode of behavior, not one that is particular to Europeans as such. So those peoples who didn't have those systems of exploitation, so to speak, they were soon to become prey to any one of those peoples who did. Now, if the empires of the Aztecs and Mayans and the Incans had not been destroyed by Europeans, I'm sure that today they would be considered majority populations oppressing indigenous populations. But that's not how it went. When the Spanish conquistadors showed up, they brutally subdued anyone they met, and they adopted a strategy of entering cities, towns, villages, settlements, and reading a decree in Latin demanding that the local populations let themselves be baptized or face war. The conquistadors used literacy as their first weapon. Within a generation or so, most of those indigenous peoples that encountered the conquistadors were required to change their reliance on oral systems of knowledge and elders as carriers of wisdom. They were required to follow along with the increasingly literary systems of knowledge produced by Europeans. Those Aztecs, Incans, and Mayans, who could have become colonizers themselves, had to abandon their native writing systems and submit to Latin. Whatever was left of their cultures was consigned to a now discredited oral tradition, in a similar way as Snorri did with the Nordic story world. And that's how traditional systems of knowledge were broken down. They were discredited, disregarded, and completely altered in the image of Christian literature. What was instilled in those peoples who were subdued by colonial conquerors instead of their own meaning-making, their sovereign meaning-making, was the fantasy of heaven and hell. Every people on this planet has once had meaningful systems of knowledge encoded in their story worlds, which allowed them to access their world in a healthy way. Those systems of knowledge were soon downgraded to lies and misunderstandings by those converting these populations to Christianity. Eventually, their story worlds became stale mythologies and folklore, these untrue tales of yore that we now dip into to get a glimpse of a lost world, a world of magic, a world of wonder. They become fictions on the big screen, in children's books, in fantasy literature. They've been ripped from their natural context and placed in an environment-controlled glass case, like an Egyptian mummy, stolen from its grave and displayed at the British Museum. Before we continue this episode, I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to support me on Patreon. A lot of time and energy goes into researching, putting my thoughts together, recording and editing. And it's not just me doing the work. I'm fortunate to have a true professional helping me with editing and ensuring that what I say on this podcast is as crisp as possible. The wizard behind the scenes is my producer, Jameson Foster, creator of the amazing Nordic Sound channel. Please consider checking out the Nordic Sound channel on YouTube. Now, if you would like to support my work on the Sacred Flame podcast, pop on over to Patreon and sign up as a patron. I only have one tier asking for support in the amount of $10 per month. That's the cost of a coffee with a blueberry muffin and tips, at least around here where I live. If you support me, 
you'll help me grow the podcast, enhance its quality, and widen its reach. You'll get access to transcripts from all the episodes I make, white papers on a long list of topics related to the podcast, and you'll of course also get the chance to directly communicate with me about anything related to the podcast episodes, the Nordic story worlds, history, culture, beliefs, philosophy, you name it. And if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. I'll still make sure that everyone gets a new episode of the Sacred Flame podcast every month. That's the beauty of community support. Those who have the means will nurture the flame, and those who don't can still enjoy its warmth. And now, back to the episode. The process of turning tales of meaning-making into fossilized fantasy for the masses began with violence, the death of the elders, the brutal deconstruction of homegrown story worlds, and the introduction of a fantasy of heaven and hell to instill fear in our hearts. Who better to quote on this matter than the one who popularized hell's fiery pits in Christian political ideology, Pope Gregory I. <clears throat> quote, the fire of hell is but one, yet does it not in one manner torment all sinners. For everyone there, according to the quantity of his sin, has the measure of his pain. Certain it is, and without all doubt most true, that as the good shall have no end of their joys, so the wicked never any release of their torments and they shall always burn there in fire for some end. And that end is that all those who be just and God's servants may in God behold the joys which they possess, and in the punished see the torments they have escaped, to the end that they may thereby always be grateful to God. End quote. Now Pope Gregory wrote this in the 6th century in his Dialogues. Gregory's Dialogues were a program to chastise the world's populations and turn generations against one another. Just look at what he says. And a century before him, the new Christian generation had turned on its elders and brought fire and destruction to the temples in the Roman Empire, believing that they were more enlightened than those who had come before them. In 391, the Bishop of Alexandria, Theophilos, cleared out the relics of the Mithraeum, burned the phalli from Priapus, and destroyed the Serapeum, sending his horde of Parabalani around the city. Later, in 415, under the control of his nephew and successor, Cyril, the Parabalani, these Christian paramilitary groups, mutilated, killed, and dragged the Platonic philosopher Hypatia through the streets of Alexandria. In the late 300s, a heathen teacher named Libanius wrote a letter to the emperor Theodosius I, who ruled during these pogroms. Libanius complained about the destruction brought by the Parabalani, but Theodosius never reacted. As a kind of premonition, Libanius who certainly was a Greek-Roman elder in his own right, wrote this, quote, O emperor, the temples are the soul of the country. 
They have been the first original of buildings in the country, and they have subsisted for many ages to this time. Wherever any country has lost its temples, that country is lost. End quote. And by the end of Theodosius I's reign, the Roman Empire had descended into chaos and split in two. Libanius died and an old man before Theodosius II took power in Byzantium and turned the new Eastern Roman Empire into a hellscape for heathens with his new law code. The result of his laws was forced conversion or certain death in the concentration camps in Syria. All this wanton destruction, anguish and rage came from that arrogant idea that Christians were saved and anyone who wasn't Christian should be punished. Hell brought to earth. Snorri certainly believed in heaven and hell. You can read that yourself when you open his Etta. Like Libanius, Snorri lived in an era of upheaval, change, and the death of tradition. He recognized that and wrote Etta. But the death of tradition was creeping up on him as he sat there in his chamber writing. A dark shadow lurking in the corner, reaching out toward him with its long pointy fingers, breathing heavily in his ears. He eventually failed at living up to the ultimate test of the elder, to continue the life way of the family and the people, to live like the future of your children matters, as Robin Kimmerer says in Braiding Sweetgrass. Snurri and his entire generation failed at that. His generation were the ones who wrote the Icelandic family sagas, which are all about explaining their relationship to the land, the family, to tradition, as much as they are about cool Viking battles and blood feuds and all that. I'd like to think that Snurri and his peers also lived on their land with the mindset that their children's future mattered. However, you can question if their intentions matched their actions. Snurri himself certainly came up short in matching his intentions with his actions. His feuds and power plays eventually led to his son, Oraikja, being blinded and castrated by his own uncle's forces. If that's the kind of stuff that happens within your own family, you're not living in accordance with the maxim that your children's future matters. The 13th century Icelanders even seem to have recognized that. They understood that, and that's why we have so many copies of the old pre-medieval poem Verlospau today. Verlospau, or the prophecy of the Cirrus, chalks the destruction of the world, Ragnarok, up to the breakdown of family bonds, the breakdown of kinship. Brothers killing brothers, Herder killing Baldur. Snorri himself intentionally placed the story about the death of Baldur right before the story about Ragnarok in Edda. And I'd like to think that he did so because he realized what extensive calamities would come from his feud with his own brother, Sigvatar. At the end, however, Snorri and many of his contemporaries failed in their attempt to live like the future of their children mattered. And this, the result 
was that they lost Iceland itself to the Norwegian king. A cultural Ragnarok. A cultural Ragnarok that led to Iceland becoming culturally colonized by other Scandinavians, first Norwegians, then the Danes. Snorri's Edda was eventually transported from its home in Iceland to libraries in Scandinavia. One version ended up in Uppsala in Sweden, and a couple others ended up in Denmark. Just like mummies in the British Museum, the books of an Icelander became dusty relics in a display case thousands of miles away from the grass that had fed the cattle whose skin was used to create the pages. Now, I'm not saying that the cultural material in Etta is exclusively Icelandic. In fact, Iceland is only mentioned once in Etta. Norway and Denmark are mentioned roughly 10 times each, and Sweden and Swedes are mentioned around 12 times. But with the Nordic story world, it seems that its attachment to land is sort of like a multi-tiered process of detachment, a pendulum swinging back and forth across the North Atlantic. Once, it was a vibrant oral tradition spoken in Norwegian valleys, Swedish woods, and the Danish marshes. Then it migrated with Scandinavians to Iceland and lived just as well there among glaciers and volcanoes. But then the people converted and the pendulum swung toward detachment. The generations after conversion did not just forget about it, of course, and they kept it alive in ways that were relevant to them with a new god at the helm. And Snorri and his contemporaries thought that it was appropriate to write it down and give it a new form in a literary tradition. But as they did that, they did not realize that they consigned it to that place in our memories where tradition goes to die, the curiosity cabinet, the museum. And as the tradition was forgotten in Iceland, it became the province of a few enthusiasts with such curiosity cabinets and libraries in their Danish and Swedish castles in the 17th century. So the Icelandic literary tradition was packed in boxes and brought on ships and sailed to the mainland. The pendulum of detachment had swung once again, bringing a traditional story world far out of its context once more. Fast forward to the 1970s, after centuries of attempting to breathe new life into that tradition in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, some of those books were sailed back to Iceland, and a big party was held there, attended by our queen, Margaret II, whose Icelandic name is Thorhildur, because her father still believed that she would rule Iceland when she was born. Now back to Snorri Sturluson. In his lack of understanding of what really matters to younger generations, probably because he was so bedazzled by visions of grandeur, fame, riches, and the power granted to him by the Norwegian king, he was the first one to detach the Nordic story world from his land and family. Consumed with greed and the promises from a distant lord, he wrote Etta as a program to explain that extensive praise poem that he had composed to the Norwegian king. To explain to his peers what the skaldic tradition of praise poetry for kings was all about, he wrote Skalskapamal, or the language of poetry, and then he wrote Gilvaginning, or the deluding of Gilvi. And finally, he wrote a prologue 
that framed the Nordic story world in biblical history. He explained that the Christian God created heaven and earth, flooded our world to kill the sinners, and gave humans a portion of wisdom, but only gave soul to those who believed in that God. He split our story world in two. He separated body and spirit. He separated earth from spirit. And he told us that it was a misconception that his ancestors believed that the earth is alive. And then he introduced heaven and hell into the Nordic story world. He turned Odin into a caricature called Allfather and said he ruled over Gimle, a place that collects the righteous in the third heaven. He created the visions between above and below, a male warrior paradise in Valhurt and a dreary female underworld of darkness in Nippelheimer. And then he said that Allfather cast hell into that realm to rule over nine worlds below our feet. Down there, his powerful spirit, according to Snurri, is consigned to serve food and drinks to those who die of illnesses. And even farther below her, that's where the serpent Nidhuk sucks on the skulls of oathbreakers and other transgressors, as if the copy-paste from Christian literature wasn't obvious enough. With that came the death of tradition in the Nordic story world. An elder, abandoning their allegiance to the land-based knowledge that had passed through generations and manufacturing a Nordic story world in the image of a colonizing culture, Christianity emanating from the papal state. There is no shortage of evidence for this in Snorri's text, nor in other literature from this period. Snorri separates the spirits of the land, the Alvar and Dwerka, into light elves and dark elves in a passage that is almost verbatim from Honorius Augustodunensis' Elucidarius, a Christian text from the 11th century that explains heaven and hell, angels and demons, and all that stuff. And the king that he was so keen to represent at the Icelandic assembly was taught from a book that referenced Pope Gregory's dialogues about the fiery pits in hell. That book is called Konungskukshau, or The King's Mirror, and it relegates those fiery pits of hell to Iceland's volcanoes, once again bringing hell to earth, detaching our perspectives on the land from the spirits of the land, separating earth from spirit for the sake of greed, fame, and fortune, telling us that we should fear hell, long for heaven, and reject the land we walk on. The last elder of the Nordic story world abandons his children's future because he longed for the recognition of a distant lord. When Snurri wrote of Odin as Allfather and authored our story world like a Bram Stoker turning a medieval prince into a blood-sucking ghoul, he committed our once vibrant oral tradition to doctrine in the image of the Christian literature that had taught him to write. He killed tradition. And this brings me back to our current age. In Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Kimmerer says that we need restoration. Restoration is Kimmerer's own invention, a merging of 
restoration with story. As an indigenous author, Kimura, of course, has more in mind than simply the reintroduction of land-based storytelling. She's also focused on the cultural and social restoration of indigenous peoples as a whole. Now, for those of us who do not live with the immediate scars of oppressive colonization, I would like to use the word restoration as a term for reviving tradition. Bringing back the elders who once walked among us and gave life to our story worlds. The elder is the connecting point between past and present and the one who plants a seed for the future. The elder educates the next generation on, on how to live a good life, how to commune with the world, how to see life in all its wonderful shapes and respect its inherent right to exist. When I look around me, I see a world where generations have forgotten that and become detached from one another. Just open whatever social media app you use and you'll find what I'm talking about. Generations are turning on each other. Boomers who think millennials are weak. Millennials who hate boomers. Gen Xers who herald themselves as the feral generation, thereby suggesting that they're somehow better than millennials, I don't know. And Gen Seers who can't even relate to those who are older than themselves. And of course, talking heads on all media platforms who are stoking the embers, usurping this long-standing tradition of the older generation, feeling that the younger generation has lost its way. Nobody wants to work anymore. Avocado on toast. They're all woke snowflakes. They don't conform to the older generation's fixed ideas about gender and sexuality, and so on and so forth. Now, this mode of thinking began long ago. The present sentiment that younger generations are straying from a true and righteous path, be it spiritual, cultural, political, or just in the sense of doing something else than the older generation, emerged already in the beginning of the 20th century. It has billowed back and forth as waves crashing on a shore. The beatniks, the hippies, the rock and rollers, the punks, the metal kids, the techno kids, every single one of these generations have been deemed lazy, lethargic, apathetic, unruly, insubordinate, and satanic by their parents. And the bizarre thing is that many of those kids have become parents and done the exact same thing themselves. The boomers and the Gen Xers who rebelled against their working class or farmer parents listened to music their parents didn't understand, wore clothes their parents didn't like, did things and had social lives that their parents didn't approve of. Well, they have now largely become reactionaries, and many of them have even adopted that strict evangelical Christian mindset, the mindset of heaven and hell. They look at their millennial offspring the Gen C offspring, and condemn them for their choices and ways of life. And why? Because they have few tools to actually understand and relate to their offspring. They lack those tools because it never crossed their minds to get them, cultivate intergenerational skills, create intergenerational narratives, story worlds bridging the gap between old and young. They condemn and ostracize the children they raised for not living up to their expectations that they never taught their children. 
No wonder that the intergenerational bridges have collapsed. The older generations, like Snurri's last free Icelandic generation, have been too self-absorbed, too apathetic, too reliant on their belief in consumerism and the hoarding of things to consider that a full life is about being connected in meaningful relationships that aren't established by plastic, burgers, beers, and beach vacations in Florida. Instead of becoming elders, they've just become old. Not each and every one of them, of course. There are plenty of members of the older generations who do understand the value of intergenerational solidarity. And in turn, there are plenty of millennials and Gen Zers who don't understand what intergenerational solidarity is all about. And moreover, neither generation can be blamed for failing to understand. It's not their fault that they've been raised in systems that favor punishment over care, antisocial behavior over empathy, fantasies about heaven and hell over sovereign meaning-making that organically grows from a people in connection with the land they're walking on. We've all grown up in societies that thrive on creating divides in the people. We've grown up in societies that would rather see a handful of people living lavishly and the vast majority struggling to put bread on the table. Societies bent on breaking bonds of kinship, turning the young against the old, the old against the young. And this is because our leaders and their willing press, the news industry, thrive on our division. Like Snurri's generation in Iceland, they're all pandering to a lord, be it a billionaire on a yacht or a figment of their imagination floating on a cloud in heaven. And like Snurri himself, they would rather see their children lost in war than risk losing a business opportunity with an oil company. And this is our Ragnarok. It's our cultural Ragnarok, our generational Ragnarok, our physical real-world climate catastrophe Ragnarok. As I'm recording these words, sweltering heat is killing people from Texas to India. Canada is burning. Its smoke is choking the American East. Raging storms are pounding the American Midwest. And the earth that was stripped from spirit by sealess men with ambitions is fighting back. In Berlospau, we know how this will go. The earth will rumble. Mountains will crumble. Trolls will burst forth from every crevice. The fire giant will emerge and swing his flaming sword across the sky. The sun will darken. Flames will lick the vault of heaven itself. And earth will sink into the ocean. Not because we've broken some stupid rule about marriage. Taken the Lord's name in vain. Eating the wrong thing on the wrong day. Sleeping with the wrong person. Whatever that means. Or whatever else these hell preachers come up with. Now, the rule that we've broken is much more important than the everyday aesthetics of prude men in suits. We've broken the cardinal rule that stipulates that kinship is everything. Kinship with other humans. Kinship with plants. Kinship with rocks. With trees. With animals. With rivers. With soil. With birds. With fish with insects, kinship with every other than human being out there. 
kinship with our ancestors and our descendants. That's what matters. And most of us have unfortunately forgotten that. The illustrative story of how this has been forgotten and our zeitgeist has become this disconnected existence is the current media story about how five men were crushed at the bottom of the ocean earlier in June of 2023. This story begins with a billionaire with a vision of our doom. Stockton Rush, unlike Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, believed that our best option for survival in the ensuing climate catastrophe was to take to the oceans, not the skies. So where Musk wants to build a slave colony on Mars, Rush thought that when, when, not if, Earth's surface becomes uninhabitable, he would rule over slave colonies in the water, I suppose. And to that end, he created OceanGate, a tourist company offering $250,000 trips to the wreckage of the Titanic, 13,000 feet or roughly four kilometers below the surface of the ocean off the coast of Newfoundland. He used his knowledge as an aerospace engineer to build submersible vessels, but as a so-called visionary businessman, he decided to disrupt the submarine industry by making choices in his designs that would cut costs and, I guess, corners. He declined industry standard certification of his vessel, and he fired those few employees who had enough empathy and conscience to draw attention to the problems with his designs. And then one day, Rush and four other men went down into the depths of the ocean. The four other men were the British explorer Hamish Harding, the French Navy diver and head of operations for recovering artifacts from the Titanic, Paul-Henri Nageolet, the British-Pakistani businessman Shahzada Dawood, and his 19-year-old son, Suleiman. Shahzada Dawood was a businessman from a prominent Pakistani family trading in, among other things, oil, chemicals, and food products. A family that has controlled over the primary elements of our basic needs. Hamish Harding was an explorer, a person who has made it his life's mission to continue colonial frontierism, barging into spaces on this planet where he was never welcome to begin with. And Narciolet had overseen the recovery of some 5,000 artifacts from the Titanic wreckage performed by RMS Titanic Inc., the company with exclusive rights to salvage from the wreckage and full control over access to it. A company that has specialized in raiding a tomb, like the British raided the pyramids. Full of hubris, these men entered the submersible vessel, and Shahzada, I guess, failed like Snurri did, and put his poor 19-year-old son, who couldn't have known any better, in harm's way. And then they dove down to 13,000 feet below sea level and were crushed by the 6,000 pounds per square inch pressure at the ocean floor. These men, full of contempt for our living world, the wisdom of elders, respect for life, were told no by the mother of the ocean and her nine daughters. 
Had they listened to the elders, they would have never gone down there. Had Rush listened to elders, he would have never built that vessel. He wouldn't even ever have thought the thought. He would have invested his money in maintaining a habitable space for everyone on Earth's surface, instead of dreaming up heroic narratives about himself as a savior at the bottom of the ocean. Narciole would have never disturbed the dead and their belongings at the bottom of the ocean. And Hamish Harding would have never thought it wise to live a self-indulgent life of the hero's journey. And I guess Shazada and his family wouldn't have hoarded resources to sell them back to the struggling people who are now dying in the heat waves of Southern Asia. This tale of five lost lives, lives that were ultimately lost for nothing, compounds all the mistakes made by men who lost their elders long ago, whose traditions have died, and who are left to a modern wilderness of concrete and screens that stipulates that the only relation you can have is that of yourself to yourself. Seek redemption for yourself, because in heaven and hell, there'll be no family. There'll be no bonds. There'll only be punishment and reward. The only bond that matters in that anti-generational narrative is the bond between you and the vengeful God. In the Nordic story world, there is another narrative about death and the past. One that connects one generation with the other. A narrative about why you should care about your legacy. It's expressed in Halvamal, the poem where Odin dispenses wisdom to the ages. A poem that Snurri certainly knew about, but decided to exclude from his Edda except for one or two references. The stanzas 75 and 76 of that poem go like this. Der fie, deje frender, de shalvaritsama, en orstir, de aldri, Kreinser golden getter. Deje fie, deje frender, de shalvaritsama, ek weet een at aldri deer, domer of duiden kwern. That means cattle will die, family will die, you'll die one day yourself. But one thing that never dies is the spoken memory of those who got themselves a good reputation. Cattle will die, family will die, you'll die one day yourself. I know one thing that'll never die, the judgment of the ages on the dead. You may think I passed hard judgment on those poor men who were crushed in that submersible vessel. In the back of your mind, you may even be thinking that one shouldn't speak ill of the dead. But in the Nordic tradition, in the Nordic story world, it is up to you to pass judgment on the dead. It's not up to some distant lord whose business it is to divide families for the sake of faith. In the Nordic tradition, you speak ill of the dead if there is ill to speak. And then you let them pass into Nippelhel, the mist world. That's how you pass on helpful knowledge to the next generations and create narratives bridging the gap between old and young. 
The Nordic story world, as well as so many other story worlds that have grown from the land, is the memories of elders who learned from experience. It was distorted by the last elder who lost his way, but it can be revived with restoration by those of you who choose to go out into the world and become elders to the next generation. That is, of course, if the Earth's surface stays habitable and these next generations get to walk on the land like their ancestors have for some 40,000 years. I certainly hope they do, but they'll need your help. They'll need everyone's help at this point. Thank you for listening.